You're listening to CinePunked. I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. This episode, bring up a new kind of monster. This episode was recorded live at Octacon in Dublin in October 2018. Any variance in the audio levels and quality is reflective of the nature of the live recording. We're CinePunked. Um, I'm Robert J. Simpson and this is... Dr. Rachel Kelly. It's, you see, it's, it's really, really pretentious if I do it, so yeah. that's why I get you to do that's it. That's how we do it all the time. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do, we're actually going to, we're recording this one for a podcast. We, we have a podcast series as well. Um, so we're going to kind of talk a lot between ourselves and we'll open up the questions and comments as well. Um, because we're recording it for podcasts, what we'll do is we'll move around with the microphone. So basically, unless you've got the microphone in your hand, you can kind of hold back the comments because otherwise we won't pick it up. Uh, and that's really, really difficult for our podcast editor, who then shouts at me for not having recorded her properly. Podcast editor is his brother, so he can really <laughs> shout at him. He, he will, yeah, he's allowed to, because he's earned the privilege by being younger. Um, uh, so this is Cinepunk to bring up a new kind of monster. Uh, and description, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, Young Frankenstein. In the mid-1970s, Mary Shelley's most famous creation saw a new lease of life and a radical makeover. Join Cinepunk's Robert J. Simpson and Dr. Rachel Kelly for an interactive discussion about cinematic homage, parody, and reworking, and monsters in stilettos. Um, so that is us. I suppose we probably should introduce ourselves properly. So, Rachel, introduce yourself to the group. Introduce myself. Um, okay. So I'm Rachel Kelly. I've been doing Cinepunk with Robert for about three years now. Um, my background is in actually historical epics, toga epics, but um, my love of films is firmly rooted in science fiction. Um, so this is kind of, uh, we've, Frankenstein has become our thing this year for obvious reasons. We've, we're, we're talking a lot about Frankenstein, but we haven't really talked yet about reworkings of Frankenstein. We've talked about the films that have tried to be fairly faithful to it. So that's, I think, is very, very interesting, um, the way it gets reworked at this period. Mm, um, so I'm, I'm Robert, Jameson, Robert J. Simpson, um, a film and cultural historian, uh, and I used to work for Hammer Films, which is probably part of the reason why Hammer keeps on cropping up in these things as best as possible. And I'm a huge Rocky Horror fan and a Mel Brooks fan. So I very deliberately steered this today to talk about films I like. So we're th- <laughs> I'm, I'm still paying back for the day I made him watch The Room. We did a podcast on The Room, you know, that absolute masterpiece by Tommy Wiseau. So basically every time he says we're doing this film because you made me watch The Room, I have to go, right, fine. But, you know, it's Rocky Horror at least. Yeah, a bit, exactly. So, you know, we're fine with that. We're fine with that, yeah. We're fine with Rocky Horror. I'll talk about Rocky Horror any day. So, um... There is this weird thing uh, in the 1970s. These are three films that basically came out within roughly about a year and a half, two years of each other. Um, I think in production order, it's, it's Frankenstein the Monster from Hell first, which is Hammer's last Frankenstein film. Then it's uh, Mel Brooks's parody, Young Frankenstein. And then it's Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, but the timeline's slightly muddied, of course, by the fact that Rocky Horror pre-existed the film as a... But, but not by my, not by very much not by though. Very much, yes, no. we're talking about this before, so it's it's a slightly muddy timeline, um, particularly given how long it took Frankenstein the Monster from Hell to go from production to release. But yeah, all around about a year and a half of each other. So I'm going to ask, like, the, to just gaze the audience. Have you seen all three of these films? It, it's very simple. Hands in the air if you've seen Frankenstein the Monster from Hell. Okay. Oh, you should see it. Uh, Young Frankenstein. Slightly more. Okay, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Sir, have you seen any of these films? <laughs> 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 uh, they, infamous, I guess. Infamous, okay. Well, hopefully we can encourage you to watch them before the end of today's session because I think... 
Yeah, so there's some of the most, well, okay, I will, I will freely admit, and I'm prepared to get things thrown at me for this, I'm not a massive Mel Brooks fan. Um, I don't think Young Frankenstein is his finest work. I think Blazing Saddles is sublime and all the rest of them are mostly lukewarm. Um, but I think it's the one, well, no, maybe I'm, uh, maybe, maybe I'm being unfair, but I think it's the one that is the most referential out of all. Blazing Saddles, I am being unfair because Blazing Saddles is massively re referential and, and, and meta, but um, it's the one that most rewards having seen the film that it's, it's, it's parodying, I think. When we first talked about this, you hadn't seen some of the other Frankenstein films, but over the no. last couple of years, we've watched a lot of them. Well, you see, I'm not you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have a, a kind of obsessive knowledge of Hammer. Um, That's Universal, really, doesn't it? No, okay, no Universal Frankenstein. Um, I mean, we we've been talking about this quite a lot. Universal Frankenstein is is kind of the source for what most people tend to know about Frankenstein. We're actually we're about to do this with a group of uh, 17, 18 year olds, and we're about to actually ask them about Frankenstein mythology and see how much of what they know about Frankenstein actually derives from Universal's 1931 film, which I'm going to suggest about 90% of what they think of um, relating to Frankenstein actually comes from that film. Has everybody seen the 1931 Frankenstein? Yeah. yeah. Ah, it's, it's great fun. It is great fun. And you, you, the thing is, once you, you've watched it, you'll realise, oh, I kind of have seen this in bits and pieces all over. And even if I haven't seen the film, I've seen it referenced everywhere. Um, and well, that, 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 let's actually make it even simpler. I mean, if you think about Frankenstein, what defines Frankenstein for you as an audience? Do feel free to shout out. I know we haven't got the mic at you. But like, what, what are the caricatures you expect of Frankenstein? Big, huge, uh, bulgy head. Big, huge, bulgy head, OK. Yeah. Boris Karloff, yeah. okay, yeah. What colour is Frankenstein? <laughs> Grey, green, white. Oh, it's oh, more diverse than I thought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. What a about lot of that. A lot of that, basically. I mean, the sort of the big, bulky. Um, Mary Shelley's is remarkably non-descriptive about mm. what what Frankenstein actually looks like and about how it's created. It's the whole sort of hand wavy. I can't possibly tell you in case you follow in my my wicked footsteps. Oh yeah, um, there is that bit. In yeah, the book, isn't there? I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. So even even this idea that he's created by lightning strike that's universal. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, the, the the machinery is very much the universal horror films. It's the grey or green, I mean, a lot of the kind of popular characterizations we see of it. So if you're going into the Halloween shop in Blanchardstown Mall, around the corner from here. You've you know, done your research. I've done my research this week. You know, it's, it's lots of kind of green bolted necked kind of Frankenstein monster creations. And that is all driven either from the Universal film or any of the, the merchandising that came out as a result of the Universal film. Um, and that, that, I think, is the, the image that we still have. And it, that felt there's like likes the monsters and, uh, you know, and, and all those other adaptations. Um, that's what we still think of. But it's the character itself is more complex. Mm. Um, now, Young Frankenstein is essentially Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder's homage to Universal's films. It's more Gene Wilder's homage to Universal's films, isn't it? We were, I think this is, this is going to be our big argument of the afternoon. Yeah, uh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difficult one. I think it's collectively. I mean, obviously yeah. it's a partnership, but it, yeah, it's Gene Wilder essentially, and then Mel Brooks' direction. Um, so much of a homage that it actually includes some of the original laboratory equipment from mm -hmm. the Universal films. You can't really get any more authentic than that. We're yeah. creating the monster by the same means possible. Mm. But it's sort of 
correct me if I, it revitalizes the mythology, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, I think this is really, really interesting that at this particular moment, and not really anywhere else in the kind of the reproduction of the Frankenstein mythology, do we get these very kind of playful postmodern takes. I mean, there's lots of different engagements with that mythology, and there's lots of kind of updating of the mythology, and there's lots of kind of making it more relevant to the current audience. But I mean, these two particular films, Frankenstein, uh, Young Frankenstein and Rocky Horror, are reworking playfully in a, and yeah, I hesitate to use this word because I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but in a very postmodern sense. Yeah, I know. Shall we, shall we let that be the only mention of the P word? Yeah. yeah where's, where's the academia, Rachel? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but, but here, and this is what we're, uh, why here? Why at this particular point? Because Frankenstein has been incredibly successful for Har uh, Hammer up to this point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Frankenstein in the truest sense, Frankenstein as in the, the doctor and not the monster. Um, it, I mean, there is, I suppose, this point where by the 1970s, the characters themselves had been on screen for 40 years. Universal yeah. Frankenstein's 1930. And well, uh, longer than that. I mean, Frankenstein... Uh, well, Edison's Frankenstein's 1910. Yeah. I know, it goes back to the very earliest days of, of cinema, But if we're, if we're thinking about kind of people's popular impressions, it's the Universal films, mm. which are around for 40 years at that point, and have gone to the point already of parody with their, their kind of monster mash kind of films and the Abbott and Casella oh versions. Oh, <laughs> And it's been filtered through a couple of other things, but by the 1970s, we've also got television in everyone's homes, and the monster films have actually become part and parcel of what people are digesting at, at night. Yes. The number of times, I, I don't know if anyone here is old enough to have watched a lot of these films in the 70s, it's sort of on TV late at night. I mean, they were they were on screens in Ireland, in the UK, and in Britain. Um, we've just done a, a recording about Halloween. You know, if you, if you watch the original Halloween, they're watching monster movies on TV. They are. Not, not this one. Not, not this one, but they yeah, are watching they monster are. movies. Yeah. So, I mean, this is very much the part and parcel of, mm. of the entertainment. So it's what you kind of grow up with, and so that naturally lends itself to, to parody and homage. So it's kind of a, an outpouring, then, of the, the new Hollywood It's movement. nostalgia. Yeah. I, I think okay, well, that, that, that's I think new Hollywood. It's, it's nostalgia. Yeah. That's where that comes from. That comes from being sort of cinema literate from your, your early childhood um, and, and that kind of engagement, that meta-engagement. So maybe in that sense, then, yeah, the 1970s, kind of the, the ideal time for it to happen. These are three films about nostalgia. So take Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. This is the last of Hammer's Frankenstein films. Um, it's got Darth Vader as Frankenstein, by the way. That's the one thing you need to know about this. Yeah, watch it for this reason alone. Darth Vader is Frankenstein's monster. It, it, it's it's uh, it's Darth Vader and Grand Morph Tarkin. Yes, 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 it is. So I mean, this is this is very much a, a precursor to George Lucas's stuff. Um, I'm sure that's probably where he got his ideas from. Yeah, and it's also I mean, it's Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and it's it's probably the the only real instance I can think of within the series where the monster is very clearly grotesquely a monster. It, yes, it's almost beyond recognition as a human being. But it's 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 not really the Frankenstein mythos, except in as much as it's become very much about reanimating dead matter, which is not. Actually, yeah. Shelley's Frankenstein. No, not at all. Um, and at this point, it's. It, I mean, Hammer have developed that that series themselves. Frankenstein, uh, as played by Peter Cushing, is, is really the focus of the, the kind of the horror within the films. He's someone who's taken that part in that creation. And actually, by this, by the second film, um, I don't know anyone know Revenge of Frankenstein. Now the Hammer film. So by by Revenge of Frankenstein, Frankenstein has actually recreated himself in a new body. Oh, yeah. So he is indeed the monster by the end of the second film in Hammer's franchise. Doesn't that just make things a lot easier? You don't have to have the argument anymore, you know, which <laughs> one's Frankenstein? Well, they're both Frankenstein in this film. Yeah. 
Um, so I mean, he's, he's gone and done all these things, and this is very much uh, sort of an extreme. But it, it, in some respects, it's quite nice. It is a homage to Hammer's films. It's once again, you've got, in terms of cast, you've got Cushing back as, as, as kind of the, the creator. Um, Patrick Troughton is the, the, the grave robber. So second, uh, second Doctor okay. in Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, he'd also been the Grave Robber in the first film, uh, although his scene was largely cut from the final film. Um, so he's back as well. You've got Terence Fisher directing for mm-hmm. the last time, um, who again had directed all of Hammer's kind of main horror films. This is a nice little kind of coda to Hammer's horror series. And isn't Darth Vader, he's the only person to have played the monster twice so. in, in the Hammer series. In, in anyway. the Hammer series, yeah, because I mean, obviously Karloff had done it more than once. Oh, well, yes, I mean, yes, you know, in the Hammer series. Yeah, in the Hammer yeah. series, yeah. Um, but then, so that, that is a homage. Young Frankenstein is very clearly a homage to the Universal yes. films. A very affectionate, uh, very knowing, but it's still a, quite a loving homage, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, I, I think you actually can't have really good parody unless there's love involved uh, otherwise it becomes poking fun at and um, well, let's come back to that that theme of love okay yep. all right um, I sense another argument bring <laughs> and, and and then you get to Rocky Horror Picture Show which is again a homage not just to Hammer and to Universal but basically to all monster movies yeah well it's it's bas- it is a love letter to the science fiction B movies mm. um, since the beginning of of Richard O'Brien's life yeah, yeah, and and very notably the Hammer Frankenstein. There's that that wonderful shot. So most of us know Rocky Horror Picture Show. There's that wonderful sequence very early on where they're they're coming up to the the castle, and it's that line about over at the, there's a light over at the Frankenstein place, and you see Richard O'Brien at the window, literally in the window of the Hammer Frankenstein place. This is back at Oakley Court. This is back at Bray Studios. They are shooting in the same place that Hammer did and had not long left. In terms of homages, mm-hmm. this is again very very knowing. And if you know the stuff, um, it is just a. A, a big tribute to yes, those, th- yes, those earlier it, films. It rewards knowledge, which is uh, again, you know, it's uh, that again is kind of for me sort of part of the the most successful parody and the most successful homage. It rewards pre knowledge of it, so that as fans we can go, oh, oh, I'm so clever, I saw that, I got that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we kind of think of that. Nobody else watch films like me, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, thank you, thank you. I have this lovely idea sometime to actually sit down and do a little film festival. It's all based on science fiction double feature as a song. And we just basically go through and we watch each of the films that Richard O'Brien references in that sequence. Oh, who's in? <laughs> yes, let's make this happen. Talk to Belfast. But I think it bridges the two as well. I mean, so Young Frankenstein's Universal, uh, Frankenstein Must Be Hell, it's obviously Hammer. But this sort of goes between the two and, and there's elements of both. Um, and it takes it somewhere else as well. Well, I think, um, I, to me, this, this the kind of gender bending of Rocky Horror feels true to the novel in a way that I haven't really seen elsewhere. Um, I mean, there's the various degrees of faithfulness in the cinematic engagements with Frankenstein, um, the novel. Um, who's seen Kenneth Branagh's effort? Yeah, yeah. One or two. I don't hate it. I admire (laughs) what it was trying to do. It got completely sidetracked by being a a 90s film, and it is so painfully 90s that it's almost unwatchable to an audience that hasn't come up in the 90s, I think. So, again, we're going to be talking about this with 17, 18-year-olds in the next few weeks, and that'll be really interesting. Um, It it, it sort of branded itself on its its fidelity to the original story. Now, 
that's a, you know, a huge question. I don't want to get too sidetracked by this one because it's not one of the films we're talking about. But in fact, it inverts a really key part of the, the mythology, which is that um, instead of being Frankenstein's attempt to usurp the power of creation, a man attempting to usurp the power of creation from women, it becomes a man attempting to conquer death which is a very different thing. It's not what Shelley was doing at all. It's very specifically not what Shelley was doing. And so the gender bending of Rocky Horror, I think is actually, it's much more true to that kind of gender discourse. Sorry, I'm gonna stop saying really annoying academic-y things. Like gender. But like gender discourse, <laughs> yeah, I know. I can just feel everybody going, oh, I'm gonna punch her for that, that's terrible. Um, but but that kind of, what, what Shelley's doing, that, that kind of discussion of well, gender, yeah, um, and and that kind of the playfulness with it, with which Rocky Horror um, kind of inverts gender norms. I think that feels very true to what Shelley. I think I think Shelley would have approved of Rocky Horror. And yeah, that's something that kind of comes up in the the Universal films very early on. I mean, that's nineteen Bride of Frankenstein thirty five. Are already you going to claim that Universal was gender bending in nineteen thirty one? Because if you are, I'm going to demand evidence. <coughs> not, citations not, not, not by nineteen thirty one, but certainly by nineteen thirty five when they do Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, which. You know, you've got that. Certainly, they're they're playing up with the gender stereotypes much more, much more overtly, suggesting that this is something. I mean, this, this is a film that that's a film that is all about uh, a creature that is created without a mother figure. You, you got to uh, Doctor Th- uh, Ernest Thesinger's Doctor Pretorius uh, sitting in his little room with his his little vials full of people. You know, and, and that mm. kind of th- there is a, a homoerotic subtext that's often. Uh, picked up on in that film. I mean, mm, subtext yes. is kind of pretty. It's it's very it's great. less subtext and more kind of text. Yeah. But is that the whole James Whale? Well, I think? think it probably is James Whale's yeah. influence on it. You know, um, but it does show that the Frankenstein series, within even within mainstream Hollywood, has already kind of taken issue with this and is playing with it from very early on. Uh, okay. Well, possibly for another podcast, but you know. Okay, I'm not. I'm not sure how far I agree with that. Um, I I think part of, well, I suppose they're products of their time. Um, they're slightly pre Hayes Code, but but they're still very much of the period where Hayes Code um, mores were required. I'm not sure how much I would I would buy into that, but but I mean I don't think you know Rocky Horror is kind of in your face about it. It's kind of the whole thing. Well, while we're talking about in your face, and we've mentioned love, can we talk about the the the, the Where issues? Where are we going with this? The issues of consent, and yes. uh, within these films, because it, it, rewatching them this week, it strikes me that that basically the the creations, the monsters, are there as sexual tools as much as anything else within each of these films. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think the words you used earlier on was all of these films are are a bit rapey. They're incredibly rapey. Yeah. Um, to, the, to the point where they actually all explicitly, well, two of them certainly explicitly reference the rape, and yes. one alludes to it very strongly. Um, okay, so hang on, which ones are we going for as explicit? Because I, th- I think they're all pretty explicit about it. Well, young Fra- uh, Frankenstein, the monster from hell, actually uses uses yes. rape as a, as a term, which is yes. quite unusual. In terms I was of surprised. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, okay, so actual rape has well, attempted rape has t- taken place uh, in the backstory uh-huh. of that film. So it's, it's against this kind of sexual uh, lack of consent. The whole story is is placed. And then you have a creature that is the product of somebody's brilliant mind, which of course goes back to the original story anyway, placed inside this monstrous creation, which he doesn't agree with, clearly. Um, 
And then Frankenstein has this weird notion where he's going to reproduce from the monster with the girl who is already deeply suffering from post-traumatic stress, having been the victim of an attempted rape by her father. Yeah. Uh, and he says this is what he's going to do, which brings up the kind of the, the rush to the end of the film and, and kind of the decision to, to undo the, the, the monster's creation. Yeah. Um, uh, so we've, uh, we've got... The, the sort of the dubious consent in Rocky Horror, so the, which which leg, legally it is rape, what Frank and Ferder does, yes. um, uh, achieving sex by du- duplicity, um, and yeah, so the, the I was very very uncomfortable. Now everybody's familiar with Young Frankenstein, didn't we say most mostly um, the sequence where the monster kidnaps Elizabeth, takes her out to the forest because he quite fancies a shag with her, um, and she is. Definitely not up for it. Yeah, Mad- Madeline Cannon spent the entire film going, no, 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 not, not, not like Taffeta, darling, Taffeta. Yeah. But, but taffeta up, right darling. up to the point where she sees that he has an enormous penis. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, cool, let's do this seven times. Um, now, that's deeply problematic um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean... Yeah, and the, and the last bit of the film is... Uh, so. I, that's a spoiler for a 40-year-old film. Can we do that? Yeah. <laughs> you still it's, it's see still them. Yeah. Um, so by the end of the film, you've got this point where they, they basically tried to switch, almost kind of switch brains between the creature and, and Frankenstein and try and normalize the creature. Um, but something kind goes... Of hand-wavy science fiction things. We'll just connect their brains together and everything will be fine. Fine to work. Um, but as they're doing that, there, there is a problem. The villagers rush in and the process goes wrong. So the creature ends up becoming super intelligent and articulate and responsible. And the question is then asked, so Inga ends up getting with, with Frankenstein, so the maid ends up getting with, with Frankenstein, and they're in the bedroom, because they've now married as well, because this is what happens. And she says to him, well, I understand what he got from you what did you get from him and he just sits there in passive silence and then the lights dim she makes a number of noises that sound very unconsensual <laughs> followed by the, the the kind of the singing of joy and it's, it's it's like clearly okay so he started basically raping her and she's gone with it that's the only way i can read that scene uh, that's yeah, how the yeah. film ends yeah yeah well, i mean i'm blowing his horn yeah. well I'm, I'm not sure i would have read that sequence quite as rapily as that um She's not consenting at the first. Well, I d- oh this, this God, was, okay, you're going to make me. You're going to make me say, but they're married, and then I'm going to be a total rape apologist, and it's going to be dreadful. Okay, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. But it, I mean, it, that, that's the very thing that got Straw Dogs banned. Uh, okay. There's a sequence in Straw Dogs where she ends up having uh, sex. It's, it's a rapey kind of situation, and she is accosted by someone who is a former partner. Um, but nonetheless, there is still a ra- it's, it's still essentially a mm. rape sequence, and she seemed to enjoy it, and that was not permissible. And yet somehow, because this is framed within comedy, mm. we're allowed, we still have this thing where oh, in God, comedy well, today, comedy, yes, it's, it's oh uh, horrendous, yeah, comedy you can get away with all kinds, particularly if the target is male. Um, I mean, this is this is forty something year old comedy, so yeah. um, it's 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 not quite as progressed to the point where um, where it's not seen as acceptable for women. But yeah, comedy is terrible for for. Um, pretending that it's somehow okay if it's funny. So I- I- is it because these are monsters that we can accept this kind of behaviour? I mean, literally, they, they are monsters, they are creations. So because you've got that distance from, uh, from, from them and us as people, is it then acceptable to have your creation be as impulsive and, I guess, 
animalistic as they possibly well, can. Well, the, the monster, the original monster, Shelley's monster, is a sexual being. I mean, that's kind of the whole reason why his vengeance is so terrible because um, his his sexual drive is thwarted. Mm. Frankenstein refuses to build him a mate. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess all these films are about having a bride of some sort, mm. which I don't know. I thought about how the bride is used in these before because essentially you're coupling up Sarah and, and Monster from Hell. We've got two brides in Young Frankenstein. Yeah. And uh, well, Brad and Janet are newlyweds. Yeah, I'm Rocky. Is Rocky is made to be a, a bride? Well, he's made to be fucked. Let's yes. be honest. Yeah. That that is his entire purpose. That is his entire purpose. Um, and he's okay with it because he has those kind of those those sexual urges. He's been grown to have these sexual urges. It's just that they don't necessarily point in the direction that Frankenfurter wants them to. Yeah, but when we're talking about Rocky, Rocky is seen as such a simplistic childlike creature. It's so creepy. But yeah, he sings an actual song about my libido hasn't been controlled. <laughs> how he just likes to come all the time. <laughs> That's Rocky's thing. <laughs> So, yeah, it's again, if you actually unpick it, you start to go, oh, no, that's not okay. But but he, on the surface, is kind of like built to be up for it. God, actually, why do I like this film so much? That's awful. Every time we talk about this, it's more and more problematic. Oh, dear, yeah. Oh, this is going to be Blade Runner all over again, isn't it? I'm going to be forced to interact with how difficult one of my favorite things is but we sit there and we, uh, the reality is we sit there it's one of the most popular musicals around mm. uh, it tours constantly we, we we go and watch that we sit there and we love it and we laugh and we laugh about the fact that these characters are kind of uh, transgressing each other they're they're abusing each other that they're non-consensually getting their kicks off each other um and it's it's not i mean it's masked in sort of gender bending but it's not it's actually something that's far more creepy and sinister mm. to the point where you know the audience sits in most screenings and most most versions of the musical shouting out that the janet is a slut yes um and, and we're kind of we're we're, we're, we're we're actually literally slut shaming yes as we watch these things yes yes yeah wow okay so for our next one we will start ruining bambi <laughs> <laughs> She's a bad mother. Oh, uh, yeah. Was there a question? I thought there was... Yes, did you well, want to... Let me bring a microphone to you so we can pick it up. I bring up. Rachel will argue now this is the bit I love best because I yeah, wander around yeah, with a microphone. Yeah, so now you, you have enabled his thing where he goes out to the audience and... Ah, uh, see, we got one that's long. This is longish. Would you like to come over to the microphone? Just for the podcast. Um, what about the movie I Frankenstein? I know it's it has its whole plethora of problems, but Frankenstein doesn't come across as a sexual being in that movie. Hmm. Well, I, not to I me still anyway. haven't seen it. I got to be honest, I haven't seen I Frankenstein yet. No, I haven't seen I Frankenstein either. That's not one that I am aware of. So, so he's not a sexual being in that one. Well, he's not trying to fuck anybody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> often, I don't think often Frankenstein isn't trying to fuck anybody, but he is trying sometimes to get other people to do it. He's he's quite rapey by um, by distance. Yeah. No, this one doesn't come across as interesting. He, We're he have comes to across as a sexual-ish to me. Okay. Uh, curiously, I mean, the, the, there's in Frank in, in Hammer series, there's there's always a bit that's picked up in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, where he rapes Veronica Carlson's character. Mm. 
And it was always said that this was a last minute addition on the part of the producers, but it actually always feels to me like it fits very much in keeping with how much of a bastard Frankenstein actually is in that series. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's uh, that, that one in particular. I think he sort of goes in and out of, of bastardiness in that series, mm-hmm. but that's the one, isn't it, where he is just the particularly oh, he's, he's particularly awful. Absolutely. But, in, in but that's cur- not the monster, though. No, no, that's, that's him. That's actually him. Himself, yeah. uh, but in The Curse of Frankenstein, uh, there is a point where he's clearly got, he's, he clearly abuses his power, and he is a sexual being because he's got the maid pregnant. Um, what he then goes and does is he puts the maid in with the creature and the suggestion I've always taken is very much that the creature's going to have his wicked way with with her and then kill her and so you get it all happens off screen because it's 1956 um, but nevertheless that's always how I've read that so Frankenstein from the start and Hammer series has been a complete get to put it nicely well that's why you hire Peter Cushing isn't it to be fabulously creepy yeah so you love yeah. the get What's yeah. well, at the same time, he's, you also got that lovely thing where Peter Cushing is not only playing the absolute git and bastard in, in Frankenstein, but he's also playing the ultimate hero in Van Helsing and the Dracula yeah. series. And you've got the two coexisting side by side. Mm-hmm. But one thing we haven't we haven't added it to our, our, our list of, of films that we were going to discuss today, but it's of the same sort of period as Flesh for Frankenstein. Do we want to go there? I haven't seen that in so long. I kind of deliberately, when I was drawing up this yeah. list, avoided putting it on. Shall we avoid talking? Because, I mean... It, that's not even about that. That's about you know Frankenstein himself being um, kind of well. Let's just uh, fairly definitely sexually deviant. Um, there's incestuous relationships. There's humping open wounds before your man ever got the idea to do that in mainstream cinema. Um, uh, it's yeah. I mean, it's well, we save that for another time. Yeah, we save that for another time. Yeah, is anybody familiar with that one? Andy Warhol, Paul Nash, isn't it? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> you know, I just you can you can live your life fairly happily without that one. I think. Um, yep. Um, so the microphone's just at the front there. You want to grab it? Sorry, we're making you do some work now as well. It's it's just a call. I think. I just wanted to kind of think about the thing about Peter Cushing being like a bad guy. Some worse than others. There was another Hammer horror film he was in, Twins of Evil. Yeah. Just saw the festival a couple of years ago, where he's absolutely horrible and he kind of goes around killing witches with no proof. But the good the, the good guy of the film actually has a conversation with his wife about, well, he's a good man, really. He's just a bit misguided and he goes around murdering people. But it's one of these, this, I remember watching this, I know it's 1972, it was like, is that okay with people? It's kind of As a kind of, yeah, he's horrible, but he's behind it all, he's really nice. And is that kind of where they were going with Frankenstein, kind of like, he's, he's a good guy behind it all, even though he's doing some horrible things? I think, Quite honestly, if you look at the way that the world is today, I mean, we're from Belfast, uh, so you know it's not that far away from you guys down here in, in lovely Dublin. Um, people are like that in real life. You know, you will get people excusing bad behaviour because they're generally a good person because they, as Gustav Weil in Twins of Evil does, you know, he's a good church attendant, he's in charge, he's a responsible figure, he's like the moral guardian. So therefore, anything he does, while well, he may be a bit overzealous, it's kind of acceptable, and we we still do that. I, I do also think that's kind of a fundamentally Frankenstein-y thing. Um, uh, just you, the, because the story is told from Frankenstein's first-person perspective, um, there there is a lot of um, sympathy for me, poor me. Why on earth does the world hate me? All I ever did was create life um, where where God had decreed that no life should exist and then abandon it to suffer miserably and die horribly on its own. Why does everyone hate me for that? Um, 
so I mean, there there is that kind of tension in the original character um, about where we are given such a lot of insight into his 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 very as he sees it, good reasons why this is something that should and needs to be done. And then obviously he, you know, he has this complete change of heart and for the good of all mankind, he refuses to um, sort of propagate further evil. So there is a tension in the character himself whereby we can look at it from the outside and, and go, just, just that thing that you, the exact thing you said, Frankenstein, that's why everyone hates you, that, don't do that and you'll be fine. Um, but, but we are invited to have a certain level of sympathy for him. I mean, he's the hero of the story. Um, he, he, we are given insight into to his motivation more than we are given insight into anyone else's, with the partial exception of the monster. And we are invited to view the monster from Frankenstein's perspective anyway, which is fairly anti. Um, so in, in many ways, he is like the tragic hero of the piece. So for all these things that he do he does that we can look at and go, actually that's really not okay Victor don't do that um, we are invited to sympathize with him so I think that's probably fairly true and I think um, with the possible exception of of that one film in in the Hammer Frankenstein over it um, I think he, he there's a tension in that character as well whereby he is incredibly sympathetic sometimes certainly compared to a lot of the characters he's up against while also being just despicable and and you know well, when you look at a lot of the the actors that have ended up playing Franken dr frankenstein or victor frankenstein whatever variation of the name you want to give him Henry um, frankenstein uh, <laughs> frederick Fro frankenstein frederick Fro frankenstein <laughs> um when you when you've got characters like that i mean the actors that play them they are often quite charismatic in their own right so you know in, in terms of sort of stardom and the and way they're that the romantic lead yeah um, we, we kind of go on board that you know they've got charisma, they've got charm. We kind of go along with them quite a bit, which we probably also do in real life. You know, it's like politicians are a really good example of this. You got a nice, smarmy, charming politician. You're kind of going to buy more of their shit than you are if someone is, is physically and mentally reprehensible. Mm. Um, so we kind of, you know, although we kind of dislike some of what Gene Wilder's Froderick is doing. We kind of quite like Gene Wilder as, as Frederick, so we kind of run along with him. Well, yeah, I mean, he's unhinged, but he's lovably unhinged. He's Gene Wilder unhinged. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, and you it, know, well, that's adorable, isn't it? it helps, <laughs> that face he does. It, it helps that he's got Marty Feldman's Igor to kind of push him along I through do, it. Do, 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 do you don't like guys. Igor? Oh, I have very, very limited patience. That, that mugging to camera thing just winds me up. The hump thing, I like the hump thing, I thought that was good. You, you know he can't help his eyes. It, it's, that's not what I mean. <laughs> that's <laughs> a thyroid condition. You're so awful on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I am not, I am not slagging off his eyes. It's the, the kind of the turning to camera and going, ha ha ha, here is my funny joke. I am the comic relief, ha 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 ha. Um, but then that's also breaking down the fourth wall. I mean, there's something we are we are along on Young Frankenstein with it. Yeah, for, no, for the, no, but, and they I break down the wall on 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 Rocky Horror too. Yes, I think it's breaking down the wall is done much more successfully when it's done with with a knowing wink that is largely implied, rather than literally turning to the camera and winking and going, "Ha, aren't we so daring breaking the fourth wall?" Um, yeah, I just but they break the fourth wall in Blazing Saddles as well, but they do it much Quite. more successfully. You know, I think I, you're just against Young Frankenstein. It's I am kind of against Young Frankenstein. I think Mel Brooks, when when Mel Brooks is sublime, he's sublime, mm. but he's very rarely sublime. Throw things at me now if you like. Audience, any comments, thoughts? You're more than welcome to.
Um, so where were they going with this, with the Frankenstein at this point? I mean, that's kind of the, the object that we set ourselves out, is, is what's happening at this point in time. That What is happening at this point in time, and only at this point in time? Um, yeah, he doesn't seem to have been quite so transgressive. They haven't been quite so no, exploratory they, they kind since. Of to type, don't they? In fact, there's quite a long period of not very much Frankenstein after the kind of the mid seventies. I think it's been sporadic here and there. It only really picks up again in the eighties. Um, uh, uh, moving us swiftly through to that that masterpiece of, of cinematic exuberance. Frankenstein Unbound. Not that one. <laughs> I, I will defend Bran as Frankenstein. I will defend what it was trying to do. Um, and in fact, the, the script that nearly was was apparently bloody brilliant. Um, Del Toro's still, the, as far as I know, talking about picking that, that script up again. I, I mean, the issue with Bran as Frankenstein is not that it's not... It's fine that it's faithful. Um, it's Kenneth Branagh faithful. It's just it's unrelenting. It has no variation in pace. I, no, but it's 1990s. That's how they made films in the 1990s. I was on a panel yesterday morning, and uh, they did. They, 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 some of the guys were talking about this in, in terms of Frankenstein, and they were singing lots of praise for it, which was quite unusual because we've been a little bit more critical of it. You have. Um, <laughs> but they, they, they really liked it. It's kind of authenticity, and I just don't think it's enough to be authentic. You still have to remember these are films, and you have to be dramatic and have to do something different. Yes, and the book itself. Um is, it's a, an early 19th century novel. It doesn't really adhere to the same beats um, that we're used to. So. It's a confessional, isn't it? The book, the book itself, is a, it's, it's Frankenstein's confession as to what he'd done. Yeah, I suppose. I'm not convinced he really thinks that he deserved what he got. No, yeah. but it is nevertheless him telling his story. And considering kind of like, it's not actually happened. him that got a lot of what went wrong, you know, everybody else dies except for him, and he's like, oh, woe is me. Yeah. I have a lo- I have very little sympathy for Victor Frankenstein. I just I find him whiny, evil git. Um, I just why why poor me? He's like, yeah, okay, your wife was literally strangled to death on your wedding night, but that's somehow. That that's somehow per you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I get uh, sidetracked by my 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 antipathy for Victor Frankenstein. I mean, quite weirdly, Hammer's first Frankenstein is a, is essentially a confessional too. It's him about to go to the hangman's noose, mm. telling his story. Um, so there is a kind of reference back to that that sort of literary form of the yeah. book itself. But weirdly, by the end of that series, so the end of Frankenstein Monster from Hell, even though there's been an attempt to take away the power from him. You've got him sitting at the end of that film saying, oh, okay, right, so this is what I did wrong this time. Next time, mm. I'm going to do it like this, and it's going to be so much better. Yeah, and very often the, the cinematic Frankensteins end up being the romantic hero, actually getting the girl, um, despite the fact that you know, the, the, everything they have done has put the, the woman in danger all the way through, and very often she's seen as a sort of a sacrifice to the overall goal. This was weirdly actually... Rocky Horror is the only one where Frankenstein gets his comeuppance by the end, essentially. I mean, Frankenfurter is penalised. Hmm. But I certainly, I mean, I've seen, I've seen shows where that it's done much more kind of joyously and he goes to his death with a big smile on his face, fabulous to the end. Um, I think the film actually treats that with the horror that I think it actually deserves. With that very melancholy number and the, the, the whole summing around and, and kind of ending up in a weird kind of yeah, no, 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 the, the actual sort of, um, it is horrific when he's trying to escape from um, Riff Raff and Magenta, uh, who are basically coming to execute him. 
um, and they tell him we're about to execute you and he screams and panics and tries to escape. Yeah. Um, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal and it's, I think the, a lot of the shows, in fact most of the shows I've seen have not seen that as a brutal horrific moment even though this, this film is a love letter to, to sort of B-movie horror and B-movie science fiction. Um, so yeah, he does get a comeuppance, um, but I do, I'm not sure that his comeuppance, in fact his comeuppance is not for creating Rocky, his comeuppance Oh, it's revenge on the on Riff Raff and Magenta's part more than anything well, yeah, else, but, isn't it? But they, they, they specifically state that it's his lifestyle that has caused the the mission to fail. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not the same thing. Um, you know, he's not the, the the punishment is not for creating Rocky. The creating Rocky is kind of a a manifestation of this extreme lifestyle that he's living, which is you know it it kind of undermines a lot of that that sort of gleeful freedom that. Um, that, that sort of that, that kind of alternative sexuality is given all the way through. I mean, it's very sinister. It's a sinister alternative sexuality, but then the, the sort of counterpart to that, Brad and Janet, is not presented as desirable at all. That kind of stayed, straight-laced, um, kind of saving oneself for marriage, that is not presented as, as something that one would want. Um, and the liberation that Frank allows them to experience is presented as, as being beneficial, although not ultimately for their relationship, obviously. Whose eyes are we looking at Rocky Horror through, though? Ah. Which is maybe the question, because... That is a good question. I suspect it's Riff Raff and Magenta, most of it. It Uh, has to be, because they're there right from the start. They're at the wedding. In the film. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose we we are are looking specifically at the film, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, they're there right from the start Mm. of that show. They're right at the end of it. They they outlast the the decadence and everything else. So it can't be... It can be Frank and Brother, and it can be Brad and Janet, because the way that it looks at their relationship. Is it is it is it that kind of very women in film noir type of morality where it's you know must punish women for transgressing the social boundaries, but we'll watch her have enormous fun doing it for eighty five minutes of the ninety minute runtime, but definitely not good to do that die at the end. Um, Do you think? I'm. Quite possibly. I don't think there's anyone who comes out of Rocky Horror with any kind of sense of... Careful I, 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 here, because lots of people come out of Rocky Horror with a great deal of sense of I, I must go and wear fishnet tights. Yeah. Because um, a lot of them have got in with a sense of I must wear fishnet I've, tights look, in I've, the basque. I've had this ride with Patricia Quinn myself. Yes, it's, he is friends with Patricia Quinn. Um, He's just name-dropping now. I, yeah, we talk about this. I... I I think the film is, is obviously quite important in many respects in terms of that, but that's a whole different debate. But I don't think that any of the forms of relationship within that film come away unchecked. I think there's criticism leveled at every single aspect of it. Ultimately, if not, if for nothing else, on the issue of consent. Yes, and that is the big the big problem there, isn't it, with that kind of freedom. Uh, free, but I mean, it's, it's implied that actually Brad and Janet kind of once once they have kind of rapely been divested of their virginity, they, they kind of sort of, they're, they're cool with it and they're on board with it and it's kind of like a, an awakening for them, but they would not have chosen to do that, either of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is the same point that, you know, uh, Frankenstein makes in Monster from Hell, where he's sort of suggesting that Sarah will be completely okay with being raped by the monster, um, because there's a greater good. Yes. And, you know, yes. even though that's what's put her into that, that kind of mute state that she that's sits in. That's all we in. ask for, isn't it, ladies? We just ask to be part of the greater good, you know? That's all we consider. Oh, 
Yeah. So we've got about a minute or two. If anyone has any other comments, thoughts, queries, or just wants to tell us that we're talking out of our asses. Jen over there yes, with the glasses. Looks like you want to say that. There's a lady at the front here also. Oh, yes. yes. Grab the mic. Um, you talked about three specific films, but are there any Frankenstein films that you've seen that actually gives you sympathy for the monster? Yeah, I think most of them, if they're being faithful to the, the film, they, or, to, and, or no, faithful in any way to the book, they, I mean, the monster is broadly sympathetic. Uh, Karloff's monster, I mean, before he, he learns to speak, um, he's childlike and is, is kind of, you know, his, his complete lack of understanding of anything, um, and the fact that he is violent is very much framed as not his fault. I think um, De Niro's monster as well, uh, he's De Niro, you know, De Niro was obviously going to put massive amounts of pathos and, and, and backstory into that character. I think there are plenty, and uh, yeah, Darth Vader Frankenstein, I'm sorry, Darth Vader. okay, Dave Prize is Frankenstein's monster. Um, you haven't seen Horror Frankenstein yet though, have you? I haven't seen, no, <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, although the monster is definitely a bit rapey, that's not always framed as his fault. It's framed as um, him being put in a position whereby nobody will ever love him. Well, he's not educated. Well, he's self-educated. He's self-educated, yeah. but he's not. He's not. No one ever sits down to tell him this is not acceptable behaviour. Um, he's, he's sort of let to be indulged, and that's always the problem. I think that Frankenstein often indulged, indulges the monster slightly. Indulged by abandoning him. Yeah. To die. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think most of the films probably do present the creature as some. You you do end up having sympathy. Even I mean Christopher Lee's version in Curse of Frankenstein, it's a mute performance. But you watch him and it's all in the eyes and yeah. and you you end up feeling very very sympathetic. I think part of the problem is usually that the brain that's put into that creature's shell is from a different person and that person nearly always rebels. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of The Bride of Frankenstein as well, whereby he, this Universal's follow-up to 1931's Frankenstein, um, and that's where you get that very iconic, I nearly cosplayed as her because she's fabulous, um, you get that very iconic beehive hair, some of the, the, the um, and although she only appears very briefly at the end, um, the monster's reaction when she basically would you know, she screams and is horrified by him. Um, he says she hates me just like everyone else. Um, and yeah, there's uh, as there's an enormous amount of sort of yeah, you are you didn't ask for any of this, my friend. But also, she literally just met you, okay? Creating her specifically to fall in love with you, and then getting annoyed because she doesn't immediately want to jump into bed with you is kind of. You, you know, somebody needs to talk to you about how this works because just because she's been created to be with you, that is basically a sex slave now, my friend. And why is it better that she's your slave than, than you being Frankenstein's slave? Um, so, I, yeah, I, very, very often the monster is shown as, as being sort of sympathetic in just his desire to have sort of sexual companionship because it's always very heteronormative sexual companionship. Just I uh, wonder is that a point to talk about another time. <laughs> <laughs> but but it is framed as being, you know, this basic human desire to to be loved. And if your own creator is going to reject you utterly um, and be horrified by you and decry the day that he ever sort of sought fit to challenge God's design for the world by creating this abomination 
looking for somebody to hold your hand is not actually necessarily something that you can reject like utterly as an audience member so there is yeah it's it's very kind of there's all sorts of issues with consent and um and that lack of understanding consent but i think the the main blame for for the monster's transgressions kind of usually lies with with frankenstein himself as opposed to the monster um, except after he sort of develops that, that level of understanding and says, I am deliberately now going out to kill children because you were mean to me. That's a bit more difficult to kind of hand wave away. You, know, you had a bad life, but we don't kill children. That's not, we don't do that. And else very, very quickly? No? Okay, in that case, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Cinepunks, Bring Up a New Kind of Monster with Robert J.E. Simpson and Dr. Rachel Kelly. The sound was recorded at the Crown Plaza, Blanchardstown, as part of Octacon 2018. We're grateful to the organisers of the con for the invite to talk and for their help with the recording itself. For more on Octacon, visit www.octacon.com. If you've enjoyed the show, do consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can catch up on the podcast and subscribe via your favourite podcast distributor or via our website, cinepunked.com. We can also find out about our other activities, including upcoming live events. You can also catch up with us and interact by searching for Cinepunked on Twitter and Facebook and Cinepunked Film on Instagram. Until the next time, thanks for listening.